John 7, verse 37. Why don't you just turn to that in, the, in your Bibles and we'll, we'll talk about um, something of our journey. Um, but based on this verse, uh, John 7, verse 37, a simple passage. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And what we realise reading those uh, verses is that Jesus' end game, the, the result, the end game of all that he was about to do uh, was obviously the cross, but he doesn't mention that here because cr- the cross really was a waypoint to where he really wanted to get. His ultimate game was not the cross, and, and it's good that we focus on the cross, and the cross is critical to the. But it's like as Bunyan, it's like the entry point to everything else, isn't it? It's the, the way. There's no other way that, th- but through the cross, we can only go through the cross. But actually, many Christians actually get stuck there. That's where they spend their whole lives actually at the cross, and actually not realizing that Jesus's end game was not just the cross but such that the spirit would be poured out on all believers it was about adoption, it was about the cross was the entry, the way that we get through, the way that we can enter into this life that he's talking about and here he describes it as a as rivers of living water flowing from the inside out, that the cross prepares us for the end game the cross prepares us for what God has really got for us, there's no other way but the cross, but once you get to the cross, it's not the destination it's the entry way to a whole new life. Am I, are you with me? I'm not saying anything heretical here. Yeah, this is good. I'll look to Rob and he'll nod. Uh, um. It's the entryway, isn't it? And the cross is central, it's everything, it's so central to who we are, but it's central in the sense that it's a doorway through which you have to enter. You go through the cross, you take up your cross, you enter in to what Christ has done on the cross, and then from that point, boom, the world opens up, as it was always meant to. It's almost like it fast-forwards us back to how we were always meant to be. It resets humanity, it resets us, it gets us free from our sinful nature. We begin again as the new creation, a new beginning, and then and from that point, we can live a new life. And Jesus described it as you'll have rivers of living water flowing out of you. The thing that I observed, though, and growing up in the church over many years and observed even uh, going around charismatic churches, when I ask people, who feels like they've got those rivers of living water? Who's like, yeah, I've got it, I've had it, I've got, oh, I'm saturated, who's got And when I would ask that question uh, and ask for a, uh, for a show of hands, not many hands would go up. In fact, when I would talk to people, some would say, I've got something, I know I've got something, but it feels a little bit more like a trickle than a a river. (laughs) It feels a little bit like I've got something, but to describe it as rivers of living waters, I think I would struggle to, to, uh, I could accept that by faith, but in my actuality, in my experience, I'm not sure I can uh, accept that. The other thing I began to notice is you look at the Gospels, the transformation in people from before they were saved to after they were saved was quite dramatic. In many cases, it was quite dramatic. And you look at the disciples themselves, you know, they went from these fearful, uneducated men, such the point that the religious leaders of the day were like, who are these guys? And then it says they observed that they had been with Jesus. Something happened in those three years to prepare them such that when the Spirit fell on them, the transformation from fearful hiding in the upper room to changing the world around them, uh, rejoicing when they were beaten, rejoicing when they were beaten, that they were worthy to suffer. I mean, that's quite a, that's quite a, that's quite a change right there. And I began to think, why, why why do we not experience the same? We experience some change, definitely, but why do we not experience the same uh, degree of change that, that they did? Um, 
And I uh, began to think about this, and, and as I did realise that, what Jesus had done with the disciples was when he, when he came, he arrived and he said this, this phrase, and John the Baptist had, had said it first, so there was the, witness, the two witnesses together that testified that this was God's truth for now, which was this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the thing is, when we, we hear that word, I think we would have heard they, we would hear it differently to the way they heard it because to them they heard it in the original language which in our language and I don't know about you but I was brought up to hear the word repent and equals say sorry repent equals say sorry it's the same almost, you know, it's like you translate it in your head don't you even without thinking about it repent so say sorry because the kingdom of God is at hand that's kind of how it gets translated but to them in their language that, which obviously would have been Aramaic but translated into the Greek the, the best analogy this word matanio doesn't mean say sorry it's got an element of that in it it's got an element of that but the bigger meaning is actually it means to change your thinking <laughs> repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your thinking for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your thinking for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's an element of saying sorry, there's an element of turning around in that word, but the bigger element is that the kingdom of heaven is here, so therefore your thinking has got to change. Now, are you with, are you with me? Is it, is it good? Okay, so you're with me. So, so we then began to go on a journey and realise, I guess, at the same time, the journey that Jesus led the disciples through in repentance was quite dramatic. And as we as a community went on a similar journey, we saw some of the... I don't think we're there yet, I think we're still on that journey, but we saw some quite dramatic changes in people's lives as they entered into the journey. And and what you're seeing, I want to illustrate to you, um, depending on the time, four or five of these things that... Repent, they repented of. And the best analogy I can give you is this, that when I take my kids to the beach, what I often will observe is that, have you ever noticed a river running across the, the beach? You notice these rivers, and what my kids always want to do before they do anything else is get some rocks and dam that river. They just, and it doesn't take many rocks, you observe that. I always worry that it's kind of water from the toilet block, but uh, <laughs> they, <laughs> we try not to think about that. Um, take the anti-back. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't take many rocks, and I, I wonder if what happened in the lives of the disciples was that the repentance was actually uh, a, an unblocking, it was an undamming of the things in their lives, such that the river that Jesus promised would come, actually when it came, was able to flow in full force out of their lives. And is it possible that because many of us haven't been taught to go through a similar journey of changing our thinking completely because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that some of those rocks are still in place? That was the kind of thesis that we went down. And the more we went down that thesis, and the more that I realised it was true. There were some massive rocks in the way that it wasn't the fact that the river hadn't been put in our lives. It wasn't the fact that these rivers that Jesus hadn't uh, promised hadn't been put. It was the fact that there was stuff getting in the way and that stuff was stopping the river flowing as it's meant to. As the river and the beach analogy, it didn't take many rocks and you've observed it yourself before that whole thing is blocked and stopped from flowing. So, follow me on this. What then would Jesus have done? What did he do with the disciples over those years, three years that he had with them to totally change their thinking such that when the spirit came, boom these rivers were released and they were transformed as people and began to impact the world around, change the whole known world in 300 years, just a few of them what, what, what were they? So a few, few things, and, and this is going to be a bit unkind because uh, we're going to do, you know, in the next half an hour or so, we're going to do four which we kind of went through over five years so um, <laughs> strap yourselves strap yourself in <laughs> um, and, and the first one uh, for me is this 
whole area of self-reliance. And um, you might think, well, I've never even heard that phrase before. How would you know? How could that be a rock that Jesus helped his disciples get free of? Well, let me illustrate. So. Oh, Callan, so I'm going too quickly. That's because I'm conscious of the time. Okay, slow down. So, um, so, uh, you've thrown me now. So, <laughs> so Caroline, so, um, Caroline and I, in our early marriage, were, 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 I mean, we were obviously the wonderful people that we are today, but we had a few issues, okay? So, and it got to about five years in where we began to, we got to the revelation, which I think it's good for all married couples to get to, which is we realised, well, I realised that actually all the issues were her fault. Um, And she realised that all the issues were my fault. And it was actually quite a happy place when we got to that. Anyone else as a couple got to that revelation? And it's actually, you feel suddenly at peace. You're like, I don't have to work on my stuff anymore because I've suddenly realised it's all your fault. <laughs> and, uh, so, and, and we were quite happy with that. So then Caroline decided to go to the States, back to the, where she's from, and to get some healing prayer with a lady. And her intention was to get, get almost a clean bill of health so that she could come back to me and say, look, it is your fault. <laughs> I've got the doctor's letter to prove it, you know. So she went that. Well, now when she came back, she was totally different. And n- more than that, she thought differently. I don't know if you've ever noticed someone that you know well change, and you've noticed, gosh, you think differently. Anyone ever observed that? Your thinking has changed. Your thinking has changed. Um, and that, that's what I observed. So next year we were at the stage, I decided, well, I might as well go to this lady. Her name was Diane. So I thought, I'll go and, I'll go and um, uh, see Diane as well. So I went to see Diane. Had, I mean, this lady, she's in her, uh, in her 70s at the time, was just phenomenal. I mean, she turned me upside down, inside out, and put me back together in a day. Uh, I, I, I could do a whole thing on what she did in that day. But um, the interesting thing was at the end of the day, I went home to the Caroline's family. Family. And they said, how'd it go? I said, it was amazing. They said, what are you doing tomorrow? Because I was going back the next day. And um, I said, well, she says Brother Nelson's going to come. She's called Brother Nelson to come. And they were like, <laughs> I, said, I said, who's Brother Nelson? They said, well, Brother Nelson's the deliverance guy. Diane doesn't do deliverance. She only does healing prayer. But if she thinks someone needs deliverance, she wheels in Brother Nelson. I mean... <laughs> He wasn't in a wheelchair, you know. And so she wheels in Brother Nelson. I was like, oh, because I didn't actually sleep very well that night. And uh, I met Brother Nelson. And Brother Nelson was this lovely... He's not... As I've told the story of the years, people have this picture of Brother Nelson, you know, almost like dressed in black with garlic and a cross. And he wasn't like that at all. He was a really nice American guy. And... Uh, and Huh? He's a cowboy. He's a real cowboy. Yeah. So um, uh, he just he we sat down. We got to say hello, and and then he just literally monologued about deliverance for an hour. And I was I was a little bit bored to be honest because I knew quite a bit about deliverance, and um, I was a little bit bored. But I was British, so I didn't say anything. Uh, (laughs) Just sat there and listened. So he got to the end of an hour, and he literally stopped mid sentence, and he said. Brother Simon, he called me Brother Simon by the way and I called him Brother Nelson which I think should catch on it was quite nice, um, Brother Simon he said, he said have you ever repented of the sin of pride and I said well I'm not actually a very proud person <laughs> which, which, which was totally the wrong answer I was a bit frustrated because he hadn't listened to me so he'd just been talking, I said I'm not a very a proud person, he, uh, not the answer was he said no no, it's not the pride of haughtiness or arrogance, it's the pride of self-reliance and as he said those words a phrase I'd never heard before but I totally knew what he meant you know you have those moments you think I've never heard this before but I totally knew. and I was literally skewered to not literally but I was skewered to the sofa <laughs> he didn't have weapons I was 
<laughs> skewered to the sofa. Um, by, and I started to have these flashbacks. I had a particular flashback at 15 when I realised it was the gateway to self-reliance where I'd walked out of an argument with my parents and I said to myself, I am on my own now. I'm doing my own thing and I'm not listening to you anymore. And I, real, I had this flashback of this, whoa, something I'd not even thought about for years, of the gateway to self-reliance. And what I observed as then I went through the the Gospels, you notice how much Jesus did a job on his disciples in repentance on this issue of self-reliance. It is a massive, massive stronghold. It was the first thing, actually, that he went after in their hearts. And just a, a few illustrations in the terms of prayer. You know, they were used to praying, and their praying was to kind of influence the people around them. That's why they pray in public. But he said, go into your room, shut the door, and you pray to your Father in heaven. <laughs> it's like you shut yourself off, because self-reliance says, I'm going to fix this problem, or I'll get someone else to help me fix this problem but Jesus says cut yourself off from all other resources notice even when he sent them out on their first journey he said don't take anything with you later on he said you can but that first journey he said do not take anything with you no money no two, no two bags you are to go out on this journey why did he do that because he was beating self-reliance out of them he was bringing to them to this place of revelation that they were following and living as a children of a father who would provide for them he was getting them free from self-reliance. The whole area of, of provision. Your father knows what you need. Your father feeds the birds. You know, when they, when they feed the, in the situation with the 5,000, what does he do? You give them something to eat. And they're like, ah, what? What kind of discipleship course is this? Feeding 5,000 people. You know, that's nutty. Well, they didn't say that. Obviously, that's what they thought. But what does he do? When, he, when they can't fix the problem, he takes the problem back, but he doesn't fix the problem himself. What does he do? Looking to heaven... Father, looking to heaven. He, he's teaching them that even he has in some amazing way laid down his access to some of his divine attributes and even he is dependent on the Father in this way. I mean, we don't, that starts to fuse our brains, but Jesus had limited himself because he was modelling and showing and demonstrating a dependence on the Father and a freedom from self-reliance. In the terms of fear, don't let any, uh, not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your Father. And on and on and on again, you see this issue of self-reliance being dealt with. You don't see that phrase, but you see this issue being dealt with um, in the disciples. And I remember for me, the, the, one of the breakthrough moments for me was I, we were raising money for this building and then we'd begun the building and then suddenly through one thing or another, which had gone wrong, um, we were like 250,000, quarter of a million quid short with only like two months to pay. And actually, I found out later we'd broken the law. We didn't do it intentionally, but we'd broken the law because you cannot commit to a building project without the funds to finish the project. That's illegal. And so we had broken the law and suddenly we're a quarter of a million pounds short and no time to raise the money. And and um, I, on a Sunday, I was like, the Lord will provide. And on Monday, I was like, ah! <laughs> and by the next week, I'd pull myself up and I was like, God is a good God who provides. By the next day, I was like, we're going to go bankrupt and I might end up in prison. And backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. And, and what is, what is, was it, was the scripture saying man like that? <laughs> he is a double-minded man, unstable in his, all his ways. And from the Lord, he can receive nothing. You know, sometimes we are the block to our own prayers. Because internally we are not relying on God. We are relying on something else. And you can tell that, you can tell that because this goes on. 
your peace is robbed and you kind of have to work yourself back up and you something is not I mean I, I, it was illustrated to me as I read the story of George Muller who was a, a, a guy from Bristol who um, he was German originally but lived in Bristol and raised money and um, support for thousands of orphans and I read a story which I'd read many times before and in this story George Muller comes down the stairs one morning, 300 orphans in this house, no breakfast. Now, I've got three kids. No breakfast, it's miserable. You know, if you haven't provided food by 7 o'clock, you know, or, you know forget, forget Russia and the threat from there. You know, you're in serious issues. So, there, he had 300 orphans, no breakfast whatsoever. And he comes down and he says kids let's pray so they pray and then you may have heard this story it's quite famous there's a, there's a knock on the door and the baker's there God woke me up at 4am said you'd have no bread for breakfast um, and then in come the loaves for 300 kids and then a few minutes later the milkman knocks on the door my cart's broken down outside your orphanage I've got to take the wheel off but I've got to offload all the milk can you do anything with all the milk Ooh, wow. and then there's milk provided but, and I'd read, heard that story many times it's very famous but what I'd never seen is what he says when he comes down the stairs which is this he says come children let's pray Pray. let's see what the Father will do. And for the first time I realised that is a man who's repented. Because he faces a difficulty and his knee-jerk, his default response, before he has even an answer, before, he didn't have, before he's done anything, his response is, this is an opportunity to see what the Father will do. Gosh, if we could approach the problems of life with that attitude... Uh, this is an opportunity to see what the Father will do. That is a repented mind. That is a mind that is totally thinks differently. And, and that mind was the mind that Jesus was trying to get into, that that is the mind of Christ. That every problem, every difficulty, when you're on God's mission, it, he, he provides. He provides. It's his work. It's, it's not us working very hard. It's not us peddling very hard. It's his mission. We are not asking him to join with us. We are joining with him. And he pays for his mission. And, and that mindset that is not double-minded, that is not that has an expectation that he is a good father and provides, that was a huge, huge one for us. The second one was this, the whole area of fear. Now, um, I'd had a long journey with fear um, because uh, of a, a particular issue have, I have, which is this. Whenever I speak publicly, often my face will go red. And so for years I had avoided public speaking of any kind because I didn't like the shame of it, I didn't like what people thought about it, I didn't like facing them afterwards, I felt incredibly insecure about it, so I just avoided it, avoided took uh, opportunities to speak I would pass by or pass on to someone else I just avoided it but the, 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 the reality was I also had this burning desire to speak I felt like God had given me something to say and so I was caught in the, in the gap and then one day in worship, a worship service, um, I uh, had this picture, and it was like a, uh, it was the closest thing to a vision I've ever had. It wasn't, I couldn't actually see it, but in the eyes of my mind, I could see it, you know, as clear as I could see you, but I, I couldn't actually physically see it. And in the, in the, in the picture, I had a, uh, an, the image of Jesus, and Jesus was standing probably about as far as you are away from me, and I was standing there, and there was a crowd of people around, and he said, Simon, have you done everything I've asked you to do? And so Suddenly I realised, this is the end of my life. This is the scene from the end of my life. And um, it was a bizarre... You know how in these visions and dreams you suddenly just, you just know? And I just knew, this is the scene from the end of my life. And he said, have you done everything I've asked you to do? And I said, no, Lord. And he said, why not? 
And then the crowd who were around, who I hadn't really been paying attention to, all shuffled forward, took a step forward. And I looked to them and I noticed they wanted to hear what I was going to say. They were like in a semicircle around, but there was loads of them, hundreds of them. And I noticed as I looked at the front row, these guys were beaten. I mean, they were bloody, that one of them was missing an arm, several of them were on crutches. They, had blo- they weren't even cleaned up bloody. You know, they were like kind of World War I kind of bloody with, you know, the bandages, blood. St- it was just like this vivid image. And I suddenly realized who these guys were. These were people who'd lost their lives, who'd been tortured, who'd lost families for the sake of Christ. And in front of them, Jesus was saying, have you done everything I've asked you to do? And I'd said, no, Lord. And he said, why not? And I was about to say, because I'm afraid of going a bit red. And I thought to myself, that is going to be the most embarrassing moment of my life. (laughs) That is going to be more embarrassing than all the embarrassing moments of my life put together in one moment. And I said to God, I will never turn down a speaking opportunity again because of fear of going red. I just never will. And uh, I never have. I've turned them down for other reasons, but I've never turned them down for that reason. Sometimes the enemy will still plague me with thoughts about it and I just say, do you know what? I'd rather face the embarrassment in this life than face the embarrassment in the next life. I'd rather face it now than face it then because then it's going to be ten times worse than it would be right now. And you notice that Jesus did the same, same job with his disciples on this issue of fear. E. Stanley Jones, the great Indian missionary, said this, fear is sand in the machinery of life. And I have observed so many times that the life that God has called us to is just ground down by fear. So many Christians, so many believers don't take the opportunities that God has presented to them because of fear. They are held back in so many different ways through fear. You look at the disciples, the number of times, I think it's 11 different occasions, fear of death or harm in the storm, um, fear of the future, uh, Matthew 28, fear of sin being exposed with Peter and Luke 5, the fear of being alone, John 14, the fear of persecution, Matthew 10, the fear of supernatural at the transfiguration, Matthew 17, the fear of a loved one dying, you know, Jairus, what does Jesus say to him? Don't be afraid, only believe. Fear is trying to get into our hearts at every point and block the things that God wants to do through us. And Jesus was setting his disciples free from fear. And what we've seen is people have begun to say, do you know what, I am not living with this fear anymore. You know, many people that I've met would have said, I'm, I am a, I'm just a fearful person, that's just who I am. But when you start to shrug that identity off and say, do you know what, that is not who I am. And I'm not going to live this anymore. I would rather be embarrassed in this life than be embarrassed in the next. <laughs> it's when you start to get that spirit in you, when you start to look your, yourself in the mirror and say, fear, you've dominated me, fear of public speaking, fear of whatever it might be, fear of man, when you've dominated me all my life, but you are not dominating me anymore. <laughs> I'm going to be free from you and I'm telling you what, I'm going to live free from you. When you start to take the attitude of repenting, of changing your thinking, of refusing to allow any space into your life, it doesn't disappear, the feelings don't disappear immediately. But I tell you what, your actions start to change. And we've seen a massive shift in our community. There was just one fun story from a few years ago. A lady um, was a breast cancer nurse and helping ladies who'd been diagnosed. And she she was talking to one of her clients who was one that she was most worried about, heavily depressed lady, you know, had just, you know, some ladies who get diagnosed with it, they've got fight in them. This lady had nothing. She was horribly depressed, young kids. And, um, yeah, she just was in a real state. Anyway, one week she came to the session and she was like a totally different person. She was bright she was laughing, she was happy and she said, 
what on earth has happened to you? I mean, it was like night and day from one session to the next. She said, wow, she said, the strangest thing happened. I was standing, I was last Sunday, I was at the gas station, I was at the petrol station filling up my car. She said, I'd, I'd never felt so black. I was so, so depressed. I was thinking, what is the point of life? You know, I, I just didn't have any hope. And she said, then this lady walked up to me and said, could God had sent her and, and could she pray for me? And I was like, to be honest, I thought, I don't really care. All right, you know, I don't even believe in God. So she said she prayed for me, and and nothing happened. She walked away. And she said then ten minutes later, this unbelievable peace just flooded through my being from from head to toe. She said it was like it was literally pouring in, and I just got hit by this joy. She said, I've been totally different ever since. <laughs> now, uh, and the lady said, do, do you know who, where she was from? Who was this lady? She said, well, she, I asked her and she said she was from the King's Arms Church, but I don't know any more about her. Now, I don't even know if that lady, I've never even found the lady who did that, but all I know is that's a lady who's got over fear. <laughs> that's a lady who's started to listen to the Holy Spirit and approaches a stranger at a, gas sta- a petrol station Let's face it, that's odd. <laughs> but I thought I would rather face embarrassment eternally than face embarrassment here. I'm going to I'm going to go for this and just see what happens. She doesn't even know the result of that. I'm not sure that she even knows the result of that story of what happened because at ten, you know, nothing happened immediately. But ten minutes later, God broke in. You don't know what you're carrying. You don't know what we're ca- we don't know what we're carrying. That's the the the, the second issue, uh, that whole issue of fear. And uh, Paul with Timothy. If you look in one Timothy one. Paul realised that the fear was in some way blocking Timothy. This is what he writes to him. Fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us not a spirit of fear but power and love and self-control. Now, now notice that. Maybe, imagine you know, Robert said, actually Simon can't come on the weekend but don't worry we've got the Apostle Paul. Now obviously you'd have huge questions over raising people from the dead and all that. <laughs> but imagine that. He'd said that and, he, and, and he's going to pray for us. I mean who, you know, at the end... The, not to put you under pressure, but I'm not sure how many people will come forward. But if Paul were here and he was saying, I'm praying for you, I'm telling you what, every one of you would be coming forward right there. Timothy had been prayed for by Paul himself. Paul himself said, you have been given a gift because I laid hands on you. And yet what did he say? Something about fear is holding this back. Isn't that the same picture? The river is in there. But fear is like a rock that's blocking it. Timothy needed to get free from that fear so that the gift that was in him could flow out of him and affect the world around him. Third area was the whole area of, of judgments. You doing all right? You hanging in there? Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm not getting anything out of this. I hope this is good for you. Uh, <laughs> the, third, the third area is the area of judgments. Judge not that you not be judged, Matthew 6, for with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged, and the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. John 8, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the, I and the Father who sent me. John 12, verse 47, if anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus really went to town on his disciples on this whole area of judgment. It was massive in their culture, as it still is today. Um, notice that there is a difference, though. I think some people get confused between judgment and discernment, and certainly we were, because aren't we meant to discern what's right and wrong? Aren't we meant to work out what's right and what, what's wrong? And of course, of course we are, and the Scriptures call us to do that. But 
the word judgment in this context means to judge so as to condemn. It's a word of position. It's a word that means that you have a right to look down on someone and to judge their actions from a position of uh, an elevated position. That's what it means. And and you can tell the difference between judgment and and discernment because at the end of discernment you're still on the same level with the person. You're still sinners saved by Christ. But at the end of judgment, you're just a tiny bit higher. And they're just a tiny bit lower. That's the difference. You can tell it in your own heart. Your words may be identical in discernment and judgment. The only difference is on the inside. That's the difference. When you judge, you get slightly lifted up on, your, on the inside. And you, you think things like, can you believe what they're teaching at that church over there? Did you hear what she did? I couldn't believe it when she told me this. I couldn't believe it when he said this. Have you seen the way they treat their kids? Now, all of those statements can be discernment, but actually very often they're motivated by judgment. And I tell you what, where we realised this, um, when we realised this, we realised our hearts were riddled with this stuff. I mean, seriously riddled. I mean, we judged anything that moved, we judged it. I mean, if if it was breathing, we judged it. Parents, siblings, friends, people who walked away from God, people who are still walking with God, worship leaders, teachers, other church leaders. I mean, you know, there wasn't anyone who was safe. <laughs> the church is riddled with this stuff. And Jesus warned us seriously. Why, why is this in- interesting? Why is this um, important for the flow of the Spirit? Why is this a rock? The reason I believe this is a rock is because compassion is such an engine for the Spirit of God. Compassion is such a gateway. Often, a number of times in the Gospels, you notice that Jesus says, filled with compassion, he looked to them, and then he either heals them or brings a word to them. It was filled with compassion. But the enemy wants to rob us of that compassion, and the way he does it is he puts judgment in its place. And when you get judgment in, compassion dries up, and then you cannot love the people who are your enemies. You can't even love your friends. You can't even feel any kind of compassion for anybody. And we, we realised we were so, so riddled with this, this um, rock of judgement. And God really had to, to bring us to a place of, of repentance. Um, uh, particularly, um, uh, it was in the areas of freedom, in, in worship was a big one. Um, so, uh, freedom in the... Uh, I think it really observed through manifestations of the Spirit. That's probably where it first started. Being uh, We began to observe God doing something in us. So, uh, I remember one particular set of meetings, and it was a little bit wild. You know, people were falling over, and some people were laughing and crying. And a guy came to me in the break of one of the sessions. He said, these people are all just attention seekers. He said, they're just after attention. I said, well, how do you know? He said, I just know. I just know. They're just, you know, they're just out. This is just all attention seeking, you know. And I said, well, what do you think we should do? He's like, I don't know. Let me think about it. I'll come back to you. I said, okay. Well, the next session, I mean, God just hit him and he was a mess. I mean, I had snot down the front. I had snot down the back. I mean, he was just like weeping and howling. He was the guy at the meeting where you have to, as a person hosting, you have to say, it's okay, everyone. God's just working uh, here, and you know you have to explain—not for the unbelievers, but for the believers—because everyone's like eyes on stalks, thinking, "What the is going on down the front there?" So anyway, the next meeting, there was a time for stories, and he gets up to, to sh- sh- tell us tell his story. And I thought this would be interesting, so he shares his story, and as part of it, he says, "I just want to repent for my judgmental attitude towards all you guys who are encountering God." He said, "I, I, I thought you were attention seekers." 
and he said, I realised last night I've got no right to judge you. I don't know what's going on. That's between you and God. You know, I can ask you questions, I can talk about it, but I've got no right to judge you. And God really has done a job on me um, last night. And that was me, you know, at the front. And we're like, we know. <laughs> we know. Don't tell us. Um, but then he said, and if you also want to repent of your judgmental attitude towards others, why don't you stand? Well, I mean, a third of the room stood to their feet third of the room stood to their feet and we've been amazed at actually how manifestations of the spirit are one of these things are, it just exposes stuff in people's hearts like nothing else and it's not that I've got a free for anything goes but what I've observed is I tread very lightly before I shut stuff down because I've observed how God moves and how through the course of history God in every move has brought something that has upset the people who were praying for the very move that he asked to come have you ever observed that? It never comes in the package you want it to come. So in the States, in the Jesus people, they were praying, the churches were praying for revival. And so God said, you want revival? Here's revival. I'm going to hit the hippies. <laughs> he hit the hippies and they started getting saved in their thousands. And so they started rocking up at church. And they were bedraggled and they were tattooed and they hadn't washed their hair. And worse than that, they wore no shoes. <laughs> and so churches who'd prayed for revival began to put signs on the outside of their, sh- their churches. Sign- uh, shoes must be worn in the sanctuary and of course the hippies turned up and they're like we haven't got any shoes (laughs) we don't own any shoes and so they had to form their own churches they had to form new churches and the churches, the very churches that had prayed for revival were the very churches that missed what God was doing and were not able to steward and partner with God and all their resources were lost the hippies had to build their own buildings and because it was a genuine move of God but they had been rejected by the church you see that same thing over and over and over again through church, through church history you know, Wesley with the Methodists he, he, he wanted to stay in the Church of England they wouldn't let him, why? because you had to preach in a church and he's like, I can't, there isn't a building big enough. I've got 10,000 people turning up. He appealed to them, it's like, there's 10,000. He would start in the church, he would have 400 in the church, he'd have 9,500 outside. He's like, they can't even hear me. And so he's like, that's why I've got to go out. So that, and they said, no, you, it's not decent, it's not in order. So he would have to go, so he had to preach outside, and then and people would climb up trees, and he's like, don't climb up the trees, because just don't climb up the trees. And then the power of God would hit, and they would start dropping, bodies dropping out of trees. Because he's like, I told you, don't climb up the trees. You know, that, that, this reality of, of, of judgment, so sad, a few years later, not more than, not a hundred years after Wesley, another group called the Primitive Methodists. Why did the Primitive Methodists have to come out of the Methodists? I'll tell you why. Because they would not allow them to preach outside of churches. It was the same issue that Wesley had fought. The Methodists had spent a hundred years building buildings. And they're like, why do you, would you want to preach outside of our buildings? Why would you want to preach? We've got all these wonderful chapels. Why would you want to preach outside? We've got to get it back out to the people. We've got to... No, 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 no. Preach it. Bring the people to the buildings. No, we've got to get out. Sorry, you guys are going to have to go. It's a spirit of judgment. It is endemic in the church. And we've got to tread so carefully over this uh, issue. And then just the, the last one, and then we'll, we'll pray. The whole area of unbelief, the rock of unbelief. 
Mark 6 verse 3, uh, a passage from Jesus going back to his hometown. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. And Jesus said, a prophet is not without honour except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own houses. And he he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. This is a massive one. We could do a whole message just on this alone. But we began to realise that unbelief was in our hearts in a massive form. And, and I began to realise it at an early stage. Because I would be saying... I mean, I remember telling a, church, a story in a church on Sunday about a family of six who'd all been healed of uh, food, food intolerances. Simon Walker, some of you may know him, Liz Church in Bristol. His whole family, they, one night, they got prayed for and they were all had meat, uh, uh, milk and dairy... Uh, sorry, dairy and wheat allergies. The whole family. And someone prayed for them and they were all instantaneously healed. So much so, they all drank a pint of milk and then went to pizza I mean, that would make that would make me feel ill, and I'm fine with milk and milk. And so, so they were all instantly. So I told this story, and I was, guys, God is doing this. Isn't India or Africa? God is doing this in our nation. You know, He is moving in His power. Anyway, at the end, a lady came up to me and she said, Simon, I've I've got food intolerances. Would you pray for me? And on the outside, I looked at her, and on the inside, I was like. Why'd you have to ruin a great story by asking me to do the same thing? I was going to go home and have a great... It was a really good preach, and I was going to go home and have my lunch, and I was going to have a really good day, and you've just ruined it. That's what I thought on the inside. Because I didn't say that, because I'm a pastor. So I said, yeah, sure, I'd love to. So I, I, pray, I, pray, I prayed... Um, I prayed a short prayer and uh, to get out of there, and then she went away. Anyway, next Sunday she comes running up to me and she says, Simon, Simon, I was expecting her to say nothing happened. She said, I've eaten stuff this week I've never eaten before in my life. I can't even ever meeting ever. And I was like, my, on, my, on the inside I was like, really? And I even said, really? She said, yeah. And she said, the look on my face was like more unbelief than anything else you'd experience she had believed, she'd taken that story and she believed that God was going to do something and he had done something and I walked away from that situation realising I have got a long way to go in this whole area of unbelief that God is wanting me to bring a, repent, a repentance into my heart and, and the thing is what I've observed is that unbelief so we, we come from a cynical and sceptical culture and our greatest fear is that we will be seen as naive that's the fear that we would believe something that ultimately turns out to be untrue. That we are just, you're just naive. And, and it's repenting of that fear. Is, it's not that we accept every story. It's not that everything we read on the internet we say, yeah, yeah, it's all true. Of course it's not all true. But when your default response to anything that's out of your box, when your default response to anything that's unusual is cynicism and scepticism, I'm telling you, because I've been there myself, it's time to change your thinking. Because God is looking for a people of faith. At least our response should be, I don't know if this is true, but I know that my God could do this. That's the, that's the basic, that's the bare minimum for a believer. Nothing is impossible for God. So our bare minimum of faith is, I don't know if this is true, but I know it could be true. And then we investigate, and then we ask questions, but not from a cynical, disproving, arms-folded, prove-it-to-me type of way, but from a way of open-hearted, of wow, I hope this is true. 
That's how I approach things. I hope this is true. Even the, even the healings that we have on a Sunday, even the, the, I, I research them, I find out what happened and what really happened and what, because I, I, it's not because I disbelieve or that it couldn't happen. It's just like, I know that things can get exaggerated. I want to get back to the source and find out so that I can retell the story in its truest form. That's fine, I think, but, but this cynical, skeptical approach which I had for many, many years, even as a believer, we've got to shift it. We've got to repent. We've got to open our hearts and say, God, you are doing the impossible in our day and we are expecting the impossible isn't that what we should uh, pray you know Jesus taught us didn't he your kingdom come your kingdom come that should be our prayer and so we are a people who and many of us have had disappointments and we've prayed for people and we've prayed for situations and they haven't come about and what happens is when you will talk about this later is unbelief and disappointment can settle in your hearts I want to talk about the unbelief side the unbelief is when there's just no expectation that God could do it through you or in you or in your town and we need to be different to that we need to be living and saying God if I've heard about this in some, if I've read about this in the Bible, if it's legitimate and, and God has done it before, then I would say it's a very reason for Him to do it again, because <laughs> He's the God who doesn't change. If I've heard about God do this in another nation, it's the very reason that I can ask for Him to do it in my nation. That's the bare minimum. If He's doing it somewhere else and He's done it in some other time, well then surely He can do it today. Isn't that the prayer, Your kingdom come? Isn't that the desire, Your kingdom come? That's how we need to live from uh, that place. And as we as we live from that place, as we walk in that place, we find unbelief begins to to shift. Unbelief begins to move. It's that repentance of God. I want to live with a view of the impossible. I want to live with a view of your ever-increasing glory. And I will not let cynicism and scepticism block me from what you want to do in our day. I don't want to be one, one of the ones who's blocking the river that wants to flow out of my life. I want to be living with expectation. And, we, and we've seen this. There is a mystery there that we, with our rational, logical brains, want to try and solve before we'll have faith. But the reality is we've got to live with mystery and accept mystery and at the same time expect God to move in unpredictable and unknown ways. He is mysterious, but he's mysteriously good. So we should always be expecting more and we should always be seeing more because as we do position ourselves that that way we will. It is a river that is flowing out of us and that's what he's calling us to. Why don't you just turn to the person next to you and say, yeah, none of those really affected me. So I hope that helped. I hope that was helpful for you. hope the rest of the weekend gets better. All right, why don't we just take a moment to pray? I know we need to take a break, but let's take a moment to pray, shall we? If you would want to join with me and say, Father, I want to repent. I want to change my thinking on some of these areas. I want to repent of allowing uh, uh, self-reliance to rule in my heart. I want to be like Muller that has that default response. Let's see what the Father will do. When I face difficulties and opposition and problems, I want, I want my thinking to be so radically changed that when I'm pushed, what comes out of me is let's see what the Father to do. If you want to get free from fear, and you feel like the fear of man, or the fear of public speaking, or the fear of looking odd, or the fear of whatever it might be, you think, that's held me back for too long. If you want to get free from judgments, you want to say, gosh, I've judged my parents, I've judged my brother. If you want to get free from that, or if you want to repent of unbelief, why don't you just stand to your feet, and we'll take a moment to, to pray, let the Spirit come. Thank you, Father. Thank you, God. Come, Holy Spirit.
Come Holy Spirit. I'll just lead us in a prayer together. I'll just lead us in a prayer together. Why don't you pray with me? Father, I just repent. I start the journey of repentance. To change my thinking. Come Father, change my thinking. Come Father, let me live out of the mind of Christ. I repent from self-reliance. Thank you, Father, that you provide in the small and the great. You provide. You are my source. I am not my own source. I don't have to look to others or my parents. I don't have to look to the government or my employer. You are my source. My strength is not in my own strength. But in your strength. And Father, I repent of fear. Of allowing it to dominate. Allowing it to yank yank me like a chain. And pull me in one direction or another. God, I want to move when you say move. I want to stop when you say stop. Father, I just repent of judgments. You know, some of you, there's a person coming to mind right now. Just name that person before the Lord. Just say, Father, I've judged this person. Forgive me, God, for judging them. I've got no right to judge them. I lay down the right to judge. Just take a moment just to lay, lay down the right. Lay down your weapons. It's powerful. We had a, a, a guy who, he, his brother um, came out as a homosexual, having just got a girl pregnant, then abandoned the family, abandoned her, run away. And he responded in a session like this. He had so badly judged him, walked away from God, this brother had gone. And he just said, Father, I do it. but by your grace, it would have been me. <laughs> what a mess he's made but man alive I've got no right to judge him it's only by your grace I'm standing here well unbelievably amazingly he'd not spoken to his brother for five years that lunchtime his brother phoned him while we were at the session while we were just after the session his brother phoned him and said I've made a mess of my life I'm so sorry I want to come home (laughs) this is powerful stuff guys so we repent of these judgments and break them and I just break you free from the power of those judgments you've made. Let the spirit of Christ be released in your family in un- an unknown measure, in a new measure. And pray with me, Father, I repent also <laughs> from unbelief. <laughs> Thank you, Father, that you've made me someone of faith. Thank you, Father. That faith is what I'm born for. <laughs> Thank you, God, that you've called me to be a believer. I want to believe. I refuse to be afraid of being called naive. I lay down my disappointments. I'm expecting an ever-increasing kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen.